Welcome to the latest episode of the IntraFish Podcast, where we bring you insights into the most important seafood news headlines on IntraFish.com. I'm Drew Cherry, Editorial Director of IntraFish Media. I am joined by Executive Editor John Fiorillo. Hi, John. Hello. And by Reporter Kim Tran. Hello. Hi there. So, the three of us just got back from San Francisco on Thursday, uh, NFI's Global Seafood Marketing Conference. Today, we're going to chat about some of the takeaways from the conference, some of the things that jumped out, and uh, and some of the things that, that we wish people would have spoken about. But I'll go ahead and kick it over to you first, John, and uh, maybe you can talk a little bit about some of the trade issues and kick us off. Well, um, there was quite a bit of discussion about our new president and the impact his policies may or may not have on seafood trade. China, with other countries, you sensed a lot of trepidation, a lot of uncertainty in the crowd. Most of the president's policies, just no idea what might be coming. That was kind of the big takeaway. I think some people expected a little more um, enlightenment on what what might be coming, but it, it's just can't be determined yet is what I heard. I don't know about you, Drew. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that it was the elephant in the room the yeah. whole time was Trump. Interestingly, you already get the sense that there's a general fear among the seafood industry for a couple of reasons. And one is that his protectionist trade policies very directly are going to affect importers. But I felt a little bit like it was kind of just dawning on the room a bit. And Kim, I think, especially in the shrimp breakout panel that we were in, it, it just seemed, I mean, you could hear a pin drop in that room the longer uh, that session went on. No, I definitely agree. that There was, um, I think, only one person there on the panel that was representing Gulf shrimp. and But as far as the rest, no, no one was open to directly commenting about shrimp and what's going to happen with Trump now. Yeah, and I mean, I think when you look at the at the import statistics, just the sheer volume of imports coming into the U.S. from China alone, it's going to be huge. They also spoke a bit in the whitefish panel about Pangasius, which is in a slightly different uh, trade position, but also under threat. And... Kim, they didn't have a lot of representatives from the domestic side of production, either catfish or uh, or shrimp. I think it's a dangerous approach to take to encourage this kind of protectionism by domestic producers. You just sense there'll be a, a lot of uh, temptation to do so, whether it's on the part of Gulf shrimpers or catfish producers or even Alaska pollock or salmon producers. I think given the way that he's giving profile to these domestic industries. I think a lot of people will be thinking about it, and I think that's extremely dangerous. So you could sense in the conference that there was, like you said, John, just a lot of uncertainty about where things are going to go. And I thought, too, a lot of fear about sticking their heads up over the parapet. Yeah, I think think so, too. And, and, you know, in the president's uh, speech, uh, inaugural speech, he very clearly said he had two rules by which he was going to measure so many things, and they are buy American and hire American. Well, 
and uh, that's unrealistic in the seafood world, as we all know. I mean, we there's no way we can produce in this country the seafood we need to just feed us. No, um, it's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. So when his, you know, bold um, promises run into the cold reality of the real world, it's going to be interesting to see what comes out of it. And personally, I, I at least when it comes to seafood, I see no way that he's going to be able to hold his promises uh, about imports. But what he can do is slap some big tariffs on there and taxes. He's already talking about the uh, border tax, which is a 20% border adjustment tax. Yeah, 20% um, uh, tax on imports. I don't know what size or shape that's going to take as far as actually happening, but think about all all the imported seafood you bring in costing 20% more. I mean, it, it, these are the types of things that they have health implications. You know, if we're to if we're to accept that seafood is a healthier protein than others, and I believe that all the science out there supports that, then it becomes a health issue if you're keeping uh, one of the uh, absolute healthiest proteins from entering the country because there's not enough produced or because you, you feel like too much is, is imported. I mean, it, it has a, we're going to be talking about this for, for a long, long time. And I think we're just getting started in terms of, of seeing what, how much of, of this bluster is actually going to be backed up by action. But I think once there's a realization of how many American companies that are extracting resources uh, in the United States, but processing them overseas. Once there's an understanding of that uh, that process, not just in seafood, but in everything, um, things might change. If they don't change, uh, you're going to see uh, you're going to see. I mean, talk about carnage. <laughs> you're going to see carnage in the seafood landscape mm -hmm. because Russia has tried this. Russia has already tried this. Putin shut down imports and said, "No, no, no, no. We've got plenty of fish. We can supply our domestic uh, our domestic needs." That's true. That is true. America could do that. What that would mean is that people would be eating uh, Pollock fillets. Uh, they'd be eating canned salmon. Um, there's simply not enough of the type of seafood that will uh, that will produce wide-scale seafood consumption. Um, and, and that's just going to completely wipe out any of these incremental steps, these this incremental growth we've seen in seafood consumption. It'll be wiped out if people feel like their their options to uh, to consume seafood are, are that limited to uh, to the species that are U.S. caught. It's just not realistic. Well, and why why would you, as a restaurateur or a food service operator, invest any deeper in seafood if the the one of the key selling points, which is the variety of seafood that you can bring into your establishments, if that is basically uh, muted by, you know, now you can only get a certain few select species and some of them people don't really want anyway. So, you know, you'd see it falling out of grocery stores and falling off menus and just opening the door for more beef, more yeah. chicken, more pork. One of the companies said that their, after overhead costs and all that, they were really only profiting. Um, this is one of the seafood importers. They were only making a profit of about... I think they said um, 9 to 15%. So with the 20% import tax, they said that they would actually be in the red. And that's something that could definitely affect a lot of those importers. Yeah. I mean, again, it's tempting. I think if you are uh, a Gulf uh, fisherman, if you are um, maybe even an Alaska fisherman, 
um, it's tempting to think our time has come to really have the enormous U.S. market open up. Um, but I, I think if you think about all the, the knock-on effects from this, the ways that this will upend global trade, um, I hope that people will will uh, not take that approach and not bang that drum too loudly because I think it's dangerous. I think what it ultimately leads to is a, redu- a reduction in seafood consumption. Um, certainly, eating domestic seafood is a, a great thing for any country to support your uh, your domestic production. But um, I think if if it's if it's uh, a matter of keeping our most popular seafoods out of the country, salmon and shrimp, uh, you're going to see uh, a, an absolute collapse in seafood consumption. So I don't want to be too alarmist, but that's my take on it, is that, um, is that we, we are um, potentially at the, at the precipice of a, a, of a major shift in seafood, uh, in seafood in the U.S., if it comes to pass. And I certainly feel that in that conference, uh, especially when Rabobank presented its uh, uh, gave its presentation on on China and its uh, its size and its influence in the in the global seafood world, um, you're you're going to see a, a major major shift. That that seafood's got to go somewhere. It'll find a home. The market will will all settle out, but uh, but it'll it'll be reshaped for sure. Same with Pangasius. Uh, what? Well, I want to talk, John, you just mentioned food service and, and retail. And I think even, or at least up there with, with Trump, in terms of memorable parts of the conference, was at the very end when we had a panel of, of chefs. And these were chefs that seemed well entrenched in the sustainability issues. But I was surprised, and I think we've sort of talked about whether or not this was happening, but there seemed to be a real mistrust about sustainability and what it's going to mean. Yeah, I think Andrew Gruel, uh, the founder of Slapfish, he shot the crowd when I think his quote is, sustainability is dead. And what he meant by that is what the industry has said for a long time. There are so many different uh, definitions and interpretations of what sustainability is when it comes to seafood that it no longer means anything at all it's you know whatever you want to call it and for that reason he said they don't that's not what they focus on they focus on you know top quality ingredients top quality seafood from whether it's farmed or wild from you know uh, great operations and things like that so and there was agreement uh, amongst some of the other chefs yeah they chipped in and yeah to his point so you know, the people who um, will oversee the sustainability realm, I, I think there's a message in there for them. And um, going forward, I'm not really sure, you know, that sustainability is going to be as important as it has been for the last decade. Um, not in the sense that we don't care about the sustainably produced seafood and, and fisheries operating sustainably, but in the sense that maybe, you know, this push to put logos on things and, and market the sustainability to consumers really may that, that train may have passed by and there may be really no sense to tackle that. And sustainability is what it's always been. It's been kind of a wholesale, um, you know, stamp of approval at the wholesale level and the consumers really, they, maybe they don't, they don't care as much. 
Yeah, more they so. just assume maybe, right? Yeah, I don't know. Mm-hmm. More so than other conferences in the past, uh, sustainability was kind of in the background. It just didn't it didn't feature as prominently uh, in this conference as it it has in in other conferences and even at this conference in the past. Along those same lines, the data essential uh, presenter. Uh, Colleen McClellan, she presented some information on how consumers think of sustainability. And one of the things that that they found was that consumers actually equate sustainability with quality, which have nothing necessarily to do with one another. So that can put people in kind of an odd position if you're selling seafood. Um, Also, interestingly enough, uh, Alaska's done a pretty good job of promoting itself as sustainable, yes, by the way. 13 said. to 1 believability for Alaska uh, that people uh, associate it with Alaska. So, hey, marketing works. But again, with sustainability, people associate seafood with sustainability. So mission accomplished there in terms of, uh, of sustainable proteins. But people also think freshness and quality, and those aren't necessarily aligned with sustainability. So it seems to me... That what the chefs were saying was, hey, ultimately, I got to have quality and I'm open to selling uh, farm seafood and aquaculture and pushing a positive message about it. But it's got to be quality. One of the retailers, I remember him saying that um, he used the word brainwashing when he was talking about the eco labels that are out there and... He said that when Iceland and Alaska, when he moved away from the MSC, he didn't see a lot of, I guess, impact on the marketplace. Um, And he said that he just felt there were too many eco-labels out there and it can really confuse the customers as in terms of knowing which ones are legitimate. Yeah, I think we lose focus that this is food that we're selling. And I can have a thousand sustainability labels on my package of uh, salmon or whatever it may be, I bring it home and it it, it doesn't cook well, it doesn't taste well, it's, it's not pleasant. I, I could care less about the, the logos. I'm just going to say, hey, I'll never buy that again. It was horrible. So, you know, I I think that's kind of where we, we're getting to it with, with this point. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot more to say about that and I think we, we kind of started uncovering that a bit towards the end of last year it just it feels like there is some change in sustainable seafood market driven sustainability that's happening among the consumers and among seafood companies and i do wonder if it goes back to what you said john where it's is it becoming just a b2b requirement um and should it have always been all along is a good question you know should should you be asking consumers to uh, make that choice. And, and in fact, um, correct me if I'm wrong, but one of them made kind of an offhand comment about the wallet cards yeah. at Monterey Bay and just saying that they're not, he doesn't see them anymore. Yeah. And I mean, I, I think that's that's a very valid point that sustainability shouldn't be pushed on to the, uh, the consumer uh, as a choice they have to make. It should be when they walk into a restaurant or walk into a retailer that they know they're going to get that. Um, but I think we'll see more of that to come to Uh, I'm just going to shift over a little bit to tilapia because that was pretty interesting as well. Prices declining, uh, and they talked about an oversupply. Um, What was your takeaway, John, on on that? Well, the tilapia, you know, they they 
we painted a very bleak picture of the market going forward. I think the U.S. they said lost. I can't remember what the number was, but it was a, a, a significant fall off, 50 million pounds last year. They were feeling around for why this was happening, and I don't think I got a, a good sense of why, but one thing they referred to over and over again was the negative press. And I know, Drew, you and I were whispering to each other during it, but I don't recall this flood of negative press, and maybe I missed some giant consumer uh, press uh, media story about tilapia being bad for you or, you know, whatever it may be, but I, I don't recall it, so... I'm still perplexed as to what's going on with that fish. Yeah, they said that there was some social media activity around it, but, I mean, there's not a whole lot that happens in the mainstream news uh, and seafood that we're not going to see. Exactly. That's not going to come across our desk. Um, I mean, you, you, know, you see them from time to time, but I'm skeptical that that's the reason for the fall-off, to be honest. Um, I think it's still... Maybe it's not branded as much as it used to be, but even then, I'm uh, skeptical. Uh, so I don't know what would account for that fall off and some of the what's happening with the softness and prices. But typically, that would point to oversupply, um, and they did mention that that uh, that there there was an oversupply. They mentioned a lack of promotion as well. So I I don't think it's just consumers turning away. I think that. Uh, I think there's some quality issues with tilapia uh, that do need to be addressed. I don't know that they fully addressed uh, the muddy uh, algae sort of flavor that pops up. I mean, just anecdotally, I've had people mention that to me. I've certainly tasted it before eating tilapia. So that that can't just be a coincidence. It's probably happening out there more than people uh, more than people think. So I would say probably to the producers rather than looking at some kind of PR activity, focus on the quality and make sure that you're tasting your own product and make sure that you're listening to consumers because you'll never know and, and very few consumers will actually take to social media to complain about those things. They just won't buy it again. Yeah, exactly. And you know, this fish, as I recall, when it kind of splashed onto the market, it was very affordable. It was what I would call a, a, a low-cost fish and that doesn't mean it wasn't good it was just really affordable and that has changed dramatically um i mean i think the prices are much more than they uh, were in the early days of this and um you know not every product can just grow uh price-wise without a backlash and i don't know if that's it or not but i think that may be a component of it yeah i mean i, I think another thing that that uh just on the whitefish panel, I'll mention Pollock because Pollock's in a similar spot in, in PBO blocks. Um, those just aren't as in demand as they used to be. There's a lot of inventory out there, but it, it's bigger than just one cycle of supply or, or a couple of seasons of supply, and it has to do with the kind of products that are being produced. So it's not a simple fix to, to, uh, to refit some of these factory trawlers or refit some of the processing plants, but it needs to happen. Um, I don't know what types of products we're talking about, whether it's uh, IQF fillets or, or what it might be. Um, but Pollock needs to really rethink things. It's a it's a good fish. It could be a very good, affordable fish. It could it could fit into that Pangasius uh, area. Um, but uh, but I thought that was interesting as well that 
Um, it seems it's in a little bit of a crossroads and needs a little promotion and, and probably some, some creativity as well. Well, you know, they talked about making Pollock sexy. Everybody got a, <laughs> a chuckle out of that. And um, I, 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 uh, after I thought about it a little bit, I, I thought sexy isn't what, what needs to be done here. Relevant needs to be done. Mm-hmm. I don't think the fish is relevant with consumers. How do they know Pollock? They know it in two primary ways. Surimi, and we know people don't eat a lot of surimi, and fish sticks, and we know people eat a lot of fish sticks. Other than that, this fish has no relevance to people, no identity. Um, so it's not sexing it up isn't what I would be thinking of. I'd be thinking of making it relevant to uh, uh, families' dinner plans every week somehow, some way, and that's a different form, different fashion. But like Drew said, you know, these factory trawlers are set to produce blocks and other things that maybe aren't, uh, consumer ready um, products so there there may have to be some retooling there perhaps I don't know hmm. alright we got to get our hands on some uh, some of the Pollock products that are out there and test them yep. and we tried it and see see how they're faring but it you know it could very well certainly with Pangasius I can see it competing on that and hey it's climate maybe that means a made harvested in the USA push uh, that that could be what it takes. Um, all right, let's let's chat a little bit about oysters, John. You were in the shellfish uh, panel, uh, and it sounds to me like oysters, uh, if you know how to do it right, um, are the business to be in right now. Jeez, I, I, yeah, I really like to be in the oyster business right now. <laughs> yeah, oysters are hot, 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 and hotter. Um, it, the panel. You know, spoke about the rise in the fresh oyster bars, and whenever I'm with Drew and we're at a conference in a town, wherever it is, our first goal is to find a really nice oyster restaurant to see what see what they have, and um, we did we did that in San Francisco. But the point in this conference that really caught my ear was something they called the oyster halo, and by that they mean the popularity of oysters is dragging along and helping increase the popularity of mussels and clams and other somewhat higher-end shellfish like that. And I just thought that was really interesting. Um, you know, a lot of these oyster bars have mussels as, as an alternative and, and clam uh, items as well. So um, not only are oysters popular, but they're bringing up some of their uh, fellow uh, shellfish. And I, I just found that very interesting. And they talked about it actually over dinner. I think we talked about this a bit. Was if you are a wealthy uh, Chinese consumer, that that now is just something that you do. You know how to eat oysters, you drink champagne, you're able to identify the different species of oysters. So that's on a different trajectory in China, um, but certainly in the U.S. The really promising thing that I see about oysters in the U.S. is that it does seem to be hitting, I hate to say the term millennial, say because I think, every, <laughs> I think the seafood industry is pinning its hopes a little bit too much on millennials, but anyway... Uh, young people are eating oysters, and um, and that's a really good thing because 
Uh, somebody called it a gateway drug. I don't know about that, but I think if you're able to handle oysters, you can handle a lot of other seafoods. Yeah, absolutely. So, anyway, even Kim likes them now, so that's good. I do. I'm coming around to them. Thank God. There you go. Well, that's it for this episode of the Interfish Podcast. Thank you, John and Kim, for joining. Remember that you can find us on intrafish.com for all of your daily and around-the-clock seafood news. You can also find us on Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook, all your favorite social media platforms. Until next time, thank you.